So this morning we continue our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark together, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. Mark 9, 2 through 8, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you have them, uh, we're studying Jesus' transfiguration this morning, and there are some pretty significant details of the story that Mark omits from his gospel account. So remember, there's four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They each have different perspectives and different emphases. Mark tends to be the most kind of bare bones. Uh, I'm going to give you just the facts, not a lot of excessive uh, detail or flowery theological language, just the facts. Uh, But this story, the transfiguration, is in and of itself so uh, supernaturally detailed, so theologically jam-packed, that I'm going to cheat this morning. And when we read um, Mark's passage, I've given you kind of the amplified version. uh, Sometimes we call it uh, a gospel harmony, a harmonized version of the story. I'm going to add some of the extra details that we hear in Matthew and Luke's accounts into Mark's account uh, and do sort of a gospel mashup version this morning so we can get a sense of the full story of the transfiguration, all right? So would you, as you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is from Mark chapter 9, 2 through 8, with additions from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, and Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves to pray. And as he was praying, he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And behold, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. They appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, And they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, my chosen one, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to see your glory this morning. God, we lead really busy lives. We live in a really busy, distracted world. really hard to just pause and step back from it for a minute and 
behold you for who you are is to spend time um, worshiping you for who you are but that's why we're here this morning it's it's wonderful um, to connect with friends to to grow in a church family and community of people that love one another it's it's, it's interesting to, to learn more and fill our heads with, with your word and your knowledge. But Father, more than anything, we want to behold your glory. We want to bask in um, the wonder of, of who you are. And so, God, I pray that even if it's not in a blinding light, supernatural seemingly supernatural kind of event father we know that anytime the holy spirit touches a heart opens a heart opens a mind to to hear your word in a new way to touch a sinner and give us a desire for more of you that runs counter antithetical to everything that is natural and fleshly in us that is supernatural that can only happen by the, the power of your holy spirit so father we pray for a miracle this morning that you would touch us that you would give us a deeper sight appreciation um, of your glory and we'll give you the glory for that in christ's name we pray amen you may be seated Uh, you may notice from my sermon title in your bulletins, rightly responding to Christ's glory, that I'm a classic doer. Uh, only a doer can take a message about the transfiguration and turn it into something that we're supposed to do. Um, that's my personality. That's how I approach life. It's how I approach problems. Don't just bring me the problem. Tell me what we're going to do about it. Uh, that's how I approach preaching. Don't just tell me what the text says. Explanation. That's really important. That's the first step. But don't leave me there. Tell me what to do with it. Application. And so, I'll be honest, a passage like this one, the transfiguration, is hard for me to preach. I'm a doer. And as profound and paramount as this event is, and many scholars consider this uh, to be the climax, the high point of all of Jesus' earthly ministry, all of, all of his supernatural miracles, all of his otherworldly teachings, all of his hints at his true divine identity all through the Gospels, they've all been building to this moment where Peter finally confesses Jesus for who he really is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, last week in chapter 8, and then immediately... Jesus predicts his suffering and his death because he wants them to know exactly what kind of savior he is. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. But then immediately, at the close of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9 here, Jesus takes them up a mountain and he reveals to them the glory of God in a way that is simply unparalleled. Not only in the rest of the Gospels, but perhaps in all of human history. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the transfiguration might just be the most otherworldly event that has ever 
occurred on planet Earth. I mean, Jesus' resurrection is up there. His ascension back into heaven would have to be in the conversation. And his second coming is sure to give all those a run for their money. But consider with me for a moment what we see happen here in Mark chapter 9. We have Jesus in whom we know, Colossians 2, 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is all the fullness of God squeezed into this little man suit, Jesus of Nazareth. Hebrews calls him the radiance of God's glory. Whenever God appeared to his people visibly in the Old Testament, he always did so as light. Okay, so think of Moses in Exodus 33 asking to see God's glory on Mount Sinai, and God replies, you cannot see my face and live. I'm sorry, Moses, I'm just too glorious. Uh, but here, I will hide you in the cleft of this rock, and I'll cover your eyes, and then I'll pass by, and you wait... And when, and when I'm by, I'll, I'll, I'll lift the veil, and you can see, uh, behold, the glory of my backside. Uh, because that's all you can see and still survive, and yet Moses still, 40 days later when he comes down from the mountain, is still literally glowing uh, just from beholding the glory of God's posterior. And so you think of the completion of the tabernacle in Exodus 40, the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. Whenever God shows up, it is in blinding light. And now think about Jesus, right? Here's Jesus, the fullness of God. He is the source of all light in the entire universe. John tells us all things were made through him. I mean, imagine the light just from our own sun, a relatively small star in a relatively insignificant solar system in the universe. One star, imagine if you tried to, to wrap up just the light from our sun, contain it inside a human body. That's Jesus, the fullness of God's glory. And yet, as John MacArthur says, with the exception of the transfiguration here, that glory was veiled during his life and was only revealed in his miraculous signs indirectly, not directly in his visible appearance. But here for just a few fleeting moments on this obscure mountaintop in Galilee, God decides to take off the blinders and we get the fullest display of God's glory that the world has ever known. This is amazing and it's hard to preach what, what can you say? What, what, what do you do with this? It's hard, it's hard enough for me to preach. Can you imagine John Mark trying to write about it, trying to record the events of that day? Can you imagine Peter trying to narrate it for Mark, his ghostwriter? No wonder Mark omits some of the details. It's like John says, who, by the way, John omits this story completely from his gospel. He just doesn't even try and put it into words. He alludes to it in John 1 when he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the Son, the only Son from the Father. But John doesn't, he doesn't even attempt to try and put the exact events of this uh, historical event into writing. It's like John says at the very end of his gospel, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
probably true of just the transfiguration. <laughs> just write volumes and, 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 and you couldn't get there. If a typical picture is worth a thousand words, how many words is this picture worth? The fullness of God's glory, momentarily unveiled in all its glory and beauty and majesty and splendor and awe and wonder. I could go on and on and on. I won't come close. So friends, before we get into our application this morning and the bulk of the sermon, uh, please don't miss this first point, this most important point to be said about Christ's transfiguration. Our response, our application, our doing is not what is ultimately important here. Your life, your faith, Christian, is not ultimately what it's all about. It's not ultimately about you at all. We exist for God's glory. He is the author. He is the focal point. It's his story. We're minor characters. He's the protagonist. It's all about his glory, and the transfiguration is certainly all about God's glory. Now, with all that said, every sermon should have application. And so what do we do with this passage? Jesus is changed, literally, metamorpho, the Greek word from which we get our word metamorphosis. Jesus is changed, but how does God want to use this story to change us this morning? How ought we to respond to God's glory? I want to suggest to you that as usual, the disciples here serve as a foil for what not to do when you're confronted with God's glory. And so we're going to look at their threefold reaction here, the wrong response of the disciples and contrast it with a right response to God's glory. Number one, we ought to behold, not sleep. Behold, don't sleep. Matthew and Luke both use that word two, three times. We are to behold, edu in Greek. It's an aorist imperative, a command. You want an application point, something to do. Mark says, behold, look, see. Now, you might be wondering, wait a minute, I thought that God told Moses in Exodus 33 he couldn't behold, that he couldn't witness Christ's full glory because a mere mortal couldn't handle all of that beauty and splendor and glory. We'd have a, a real Raiders of the Lost Ark situation in our, on our faces with Peter and James and John's faces melting off. So what's going on here? Well, my answer, my interpretation is that just like God used the cleft of the rock in Exodus to cover Moses' face to protect him from his own glory for his own good, uh, God uses the disciples' nap here in the same way to save, literally to save their faces. And we only hear about the nap in Luke's gospel, but it's, it's significant. You think of like the solar eclipse from a couple years back now? Not a good idea to stare straight into the sun, right? Anybody cheap out on the, on the glasses and try and still watch it? You got to be careful. Matthew tells us Jesus' face shone like the sun, and remember, it's just an understatement. Uh, it's a metaphor to get as close as he can because Matthew has no other humanly words to describe just how bright and glorious this must have been. The source of all light. And so I've got to believe that God, in his perfect sovereignty, ordained that Peter and James and John, predictably the same three, 
uh, that are going to fall asleep on Jesus in his hour of greatest need a, a couple chapters later when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his arrest and crucifixion. Here they are again, same three. They have a knack for finding the most crucial moments to take a nap. But God, in his goodness and providence, uses their human frailty to save their faces as they sleep through the most significant display of God's glory the world has ever known. But friends, let me ask you this morning, how often do you sleep on God's glory? I've been uh, thinking more about Lucien's really good uh, Ask the Pastor question from last week. Can our deceased loved ones look down on us from heaven? And if you listen to the podcast, you heard me reference Hebrews 12, 23. The spirits of the righteous will be made perfect. And so I elaborated on John Piper's really insightful point that if God grants saints in heaven to see the suffering and misery as well as the good on earth, we may be sure that they see it not with their old and perfect eyes. They will see it and understand it and assess all things in a perfectly spiritual way so they will not in the least doubt the goodness of God and what they see. And I just can't help but wonder, what if we could begin to see that way now? Like, what if sanctification, being made perfect in this lifetime, on this side of eternity, being transformed, metamorpho, it's the same word Paul uses in Romans 12 too, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, what if we grew more in our knowledge and understanding of the Lord and our walk with Him? Would we begin to see God's glory everywhere? I mean, the whole earth is filled with God's glory. Scripture is abundantly clear about that. Psalm 72, 19, Isaiah 6, 3, Numbers 14, 21, Jeremiah 23, 24, Ephesians 4, 10, Habakkuk 2, 14. <laughs> whole earth is filled with God's glory. And so if all of creation testifies to the glory and splendor of God, if that is indeed why there is something rather than nothing in the first place, and if that's why you and I have been given the gift of life that we have, it's all for God's glory. If it's everywhere, then why don't we see it? Why are we so quick? Why is it so easy for us to experience life as mundane. My wife, eh, I'm used to her. And if I could just pause and spend a few hours talking about the glory of my wife, I mean, the God's glory that I see in my wife, the way that she manifests God's glory to me every day, and yet I miss it. I miss it every day. What about you? How much of God's glory is all around you? It fills the whole earth. What are you missing out on? In your spouse? In your kids? In your mundane job that you hate? In your boring coworkers that you can't stand? They're image bearers of God. Listen, this is not the world's hallmark, see a miracle in every snowflake message, all right? 
The world tells you to carpe the diem, turn every moment into a miracle because this world's all you've got. This fleeting life is all you've got. When it's over, you turn to dirt and you get eaten by worms, and so you better enjoy it while you can. If that worldview gets you fired up to go out and live your best life now, then more power to you. It takes me to a very different place, personally. <laughs> What's the point? No, friends, Christianity says we can actually find meaning in every single moment in the mundane. There is actually purpose and beauty and hope to be found. God's glory to be found everywhere if we will stop and look, even in the worst of life that we experience, our immense pain and suffering, Paul says in Romans 5.3, we rejoice in our sufferings. The word there is we glory in our sufferings because one day we know that we will see with perfected eyes. We will know fully and we'll look back on these lives and we'll be able to see exactly how God was working all things together for our good, Romans 8, 28. And the amazing thing is, Scripture says we don't have to wait for that day. Like we can begin to experience the world through transformed eyes, renewed minds today, and begin to see God's glory everywhere if we will but pause and behold, consider Romans 3, 23, that famous gospel verse we love, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We often interpret that as God is perfect, we've all sinned, therefore we don't deserve to be in relationship with him, in heaven with him, that's all true. But another way to interpret what Paul says there is to simply understand that God is glorious. The glory of God is everywhere. And you and I, Isaiah 43, 7, were created for his glory, to bring him glory, to worship him for his glory, to behold it. And yet we fall short of that all the time. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, in what areas of your life have you been sleeping on God's glory? Blind to it, missing it, falling short. And how might God be calling you this morning to pause to repent of that and to behold. Response number two to God's glory is that we ought to listen, not speak. See, some, everybody here is going to break down into one of two people. You're either going to be a sleeper who, who um, you know, just tends to not even show up into the, into the ballpark, or you're going to be a gamer like me who, and Peter who wants to get out on the field and like steal Jesus' role as star quarterback. Where It's hard for us to, to just be content being a spectator, being a fan. Behold. That's what we're called to today. Behold. God is doing something. It's about his glory. We have a role. Uh, it's not to sleep, but it's also not to be the star quarterback. So listen to this. Listen more, talk less. James 1.19. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinions. Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. <laughs> and yet, in Mark 9, Peter, oh Peter, 
in the midst of the most supernatural, awe-inspiring, words should escape me moment in all of human history, what is Peter's response? Do you know people like this? Who just can't seem to help themselves? Anyone else's kids like that? I can be in the middle of the most beautiful, sacred, I just want to freeze time in this moment uh, experience with my daughter. The other day, she came up to me and she said, Daddy, I just want to dance for you. And I put music on and she just danced. And I just cried and it was beautiful. And she came over to me and she bent down to whisper in my ear and I thought she was just going to seal it like by telling me how much she loved me. <laughs> she said, Daddy, I need to go puppy. <laughs> There's something wrong about that, isn't there? Uh, about wrecking the glory of a moment like that. Now take that and multiply that by infinity and you've got what Peter does here. Talk about falling short of the glory of God. Glory, that same word for glory, doxa, like we call the doxa down here. Um, kavod is the Hebrew word. Means, it, it literally means weighty. God is weighty. He's so important. And, and that's what, you know, my daughter made something light of a weighty moment. Peter makes something really light of a weighty moment. The glory of God, the fullness of God's glory on brilliant display. Nothing needs to be said, Peter. What can you possibly come up with to say, Peter? Hey, Jesus, want us to make some tents? <laughs> I can't wait to get to heaven and give him a hard time about that one. Right? God is so gracious. Other people in the Bible have caught on fire, have literally just dropped dead for less than this for making light of God's glory, his weight, his importance. Peter deserves that. Peter deserves for the, the earth to just open up and swallow him like uh, those, those guys in, in, in the Old Testament. Well, instead, what does God the Father do? He comes to Peter in his glory in the form of a cloud. Think again of the cloud of God's glory covering the tent of meeting in Exodus 40. And this cloud overshadows them. And Luke 9 says they actually enter the cloud. Instead of pushing Peter down the mountain like he deserves, God pulls him in closer like a good father should. What a beautiful picture. But then also, like a good father should, when his child needs reproof, God pulls him in and he sets him straight. And he says, Peter... This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen more. Speak less. Friends, how often do we do the same? I mean, how often is the reason that we miss out on God's glory, the reason we miss out on God's voice, God's will for our lives, because we're too busy talking to shut up and just listen for, for half a minute? What percentage of your prayers do you spend talking and what percentage do you spend listening? You know, prayer is supposed to be a conversation with God, right? Conversations are two-way streets. Again, you know people like this who just 
Never shut up. You can't get a word in edgewise. Are they fun to be around? Some of y'all who are extreme introverts are like, yeah, that's all my friends. If we're going to be friends, you're going to have to fill 100% of the conversation. Guess what? God's not like that. God has got plenty that he wants to say. 2,300 and, what did I count? 34 pages worth of small print that he wants to say. And even more than that, because he still wants to speak to us today. He's not done talking. And how much of it do we miss out on because we're too busy talking at him to pause and listen? I've told some of y'all this story before. Uh, when we knew we were leaving Culver, the boarding school that I worked at for five years before we came here, I just, I fought it, I fought, I fought, I prayed, I, I asked God to open a door for us to stay there, loved it there. I pleaded with God for months. I think it, must, it was just a few weeks before we were basically gonna be evicted from our campus housing that we were living in when the spring term ended. Didn't know where we we're gonna go next, what we we're gonna do next. I decided, okay, I'm just gonna take a day, whole day, I'm gonna get away, I'm gonna drive up to the dunes on Lake Michigan, I'm gonna fast, I'm gonna pray, I'm just gonna be quiet. I'm just gonna ask the Lord to speak to me, and I'm gonna listen. And keep in mind, uh, this was a last ditch effort for me. It's like a Hail Mary, uh, fourth quarter. I, I, this is not familiar territory for me. I don't think I'd ever done that at that point in my life. This was just like when all my other job searching and negotiating with the school and everything I had tried to do failed. And it was just remarkable to me, shocking, kind of embarrassing, how quickly God spoke to me. <laughs> Once I finally shut up and listened for like half a minute, it was almost like he wanted to say something all along. And he was just patiently waiting to get a word in edgewise. And y'all know the rest of the story, what I heard him speak to my heart, St. Louis. And I laughed because I had promised Polly when we got married, I'll move anywhere in the world for you but St. Louis. <laughs> She's from here, that's a whole other story. But as they say, if you want to make God laugh, you tell him your plans. And I would add to that, if you want to hear God's plans, you need to be quiet for half a minute. Where might God be calling you this morning to pause, behold, listen more, speak less? Finally, response number three, draw near, don't fear. Look with me especially at Matthew's version of the last couple of verses here. From Matthew 17, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And what a powerful picture that is. You wanna talk about fear? So just keep this in mind, the context. This is only the second time that God the Father has spoken in an audible voice to humans in over 400 years now. God spoke with their forefathers all the time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. But when most of them stopped listening, God started designating special prophets to whom he would speak. 
And then when people stopped listening to them too, God just went silent for 400 years at the close of the Old Testament. And then the New Testament opens, and angels start talking to people again, telling Mary and Joseph, behold, you're going to have a, a baby. That was scary enough. They got really scared. The only other time God had spoken to this point in the New Testament was at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, when he said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And so apparently God was speaking just directly to Jesus. Others weren't hearing. And so the disciples here in Mark 9 are the first humans to audibly hear the voice of God in over 400 years. And it's in direct response to something really, really stupid that Peter's just done. So yeah, they are terrified. They're rightfully terrified. They know the stories of those people back then that made light of the glory of God. They know the Old Testament, their Old Testament. They know about people catching on fire and the earth splitting open and all that. But what does Jesus do here? Does he punish Peter? Does he belittle him? Put Peter down? That's what Peter deserves. But Jesus, in verse 9, came near and touched him and said, rise and have no fear. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. That's a beautiful picture. I think of the verse we sing, he shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. The disciples here, in this fleeting moment, their, their eyes are just transfixed on Jesus' face as they get a foretaste here of the glory that is to come for all those who have followed Christ when he returns for his bride. And here's the thing, friends, and here's how I want to end today, because as much as I think every sermon needs application, some good take-home points. Yes, spend more time this week beholding. Yes, spend more time this week listening instead of talking. But as much as every sermon needs application, it needs the gospel even more. And so let me just share the good news of Jesus with you this morning. That while you were as good as asleep, and actually it's the, the news is even better than that, because you weren't just asleep. You were actively rebelling, rejecting the glorious God of the universe whose splendor fills all of creation. While you were rebelling against him, he was doing something for you on a cross that was infinitely worthy of your pausing and beholding. It ought to stop us in our tracks this morning. While you were busy speaking, mocking him, just like the soldiers who strung him up on the cross and spat on him. Remember, it was my sin that held him there. Your sin, our sin, held Jesus on the cross. And while we were busy mocking him, too busy rejecting him to even stop to notice or care, if we had stopped and listened instead of talking, we would have heard him say, it is finished. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's finished because I've paid their debt in full, once and for all, the debt that they rightfully owed God by virtue of their sin but couldn't pay. 
And he made a way for a sinner like you to be adopted back into his glorious family again. And because of that, not because of anything you've done, you have every reason to tremble in fear and be terrified like the disciples here based on what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you, friends. In his life, his death, and his resurrection, God can say to you this morning, rise and have no fear. God says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Your good and loving Heavenly Father wants to draw near to you today. And Jesus Christ has made that relationship possible for you once again. But relationships, like conversations, are a two-way street. And so I ask you this morning, will you rise? Will you look around? And will you resolve to see no one else this morning but Jesus alone? Paul said, I consider everything in this world as garbage compared to the glory of knowing Christ Jesus. Will you transfix your eyes on Jesus' face this morning? Let's pray.